Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller and on the show. In the Crime Scenes episode this week, 757 years. That's how long the Washington Post says it will take to clear Ukraine of mines. About those cluster bombs, Pacifica host and contributor to this show, Garland Nixon, with guest Scott Ritter breaking it all down. When you put together pieces of evidence, you know, in an investigation, you see what aligns, right? And here's the first thing I was thinking about. Joe Biden was asked, why is it that you're sending cluster munitions? And, and, and I mean, to paraphrase, he was like, we got nothing else. That's all. The cupboard is bare. So when I connect those two breadcrumbs, Joe Biden, and, and people are like, oh, no, he just said that. Oh, well, no, we got play, blah, blah, blah. But when you have a guy on the battlefield saying, hey, man, can you do a bake sale or something back in Lvov to send us a, you know, a couple of rounds or something? We're skinned. And you got Biden. Hey, how's things going in the U.S.? Ah, we got nothing to send them. You got nothing on the battlefield. And I know these people are following the news. If you're on the battlefield, unfortunately for them, they've been following news on the phones a little too often. And the Russians have been citing in on those phones. But all that being said, Biden's saying they got nothing. The people on the, on, 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 on the ground are saying they got nothing. That's kind of the depth. That's not even a collapse. That's something, you know, you just, it's like you're in a in the Indy 500 and you run out of gas. Yeah. <laughs> you know I mean, you're out of the race. And it's not like you really lost the race. You're just out of the race. Anyway, your thoughts on this, um, the, the, the what we're hearing about, the, the UK is down to 40 tanks. Everybody in NATO sure. is saying, I'm skinned, man. Yeah. The cupboard's bare. Well, you know, I love your Indy 500 uh, analogy, so I'm going to riff on that, if you don't mind. Uh, But this is like Mario Andretti. Okay, we we know who he is. All right. Oh, Mario was a great Indy 500 uh, racer. Loved to watch Mario because you never knew what was going to happen. He could either win it or just crash everything. Uh, But Mario, it's like him getting out, you know, two weeks ahead and and saying, yeah, um, I got a great car. I've been training pretty good. Uh, the reality is uh, we only have a budget for, um, you know, X amount of gas, which means uh, I, I'm supposed to go 500 laps, but at uh, lap 375, I run out of gas and there's there's no gas left. And everybody's like, but Mario can still win it. Mario just told you that he runs out of gas at lap 375 and that's it. There's no gas left. Jan Stoltenberg last October said Ukraine will run out of ammunition this summer. Like right now. I mean, I July, we're sort of, this is this summer, uh, said they're going to out. And then they've been talking, he said, we're going to have to come up with alternate sources. So I've been following that because identified a problem. That's like Mario saying, unless we get more gas, I'm done at 375. So is Mario getting gas? That's the question. And what we're finding out is there ain't no gas for Mario to get, uh, you know, none available, can't make it, can't produce it, can't buy it. And so as we get close to the Indy 500, Mario's going, I ain't got any gas, which means what? He runs out of gas at 375, the race is over. So they said Ukraine's out of ammunition. Burrell just recently said, yeah, we haven't been able to produce any because we don't have the industrial capacity. Uh, defense industries don't want to you know, reopen lines with small contracts. We don't, even if they did, we don't have the raw material. So the answer is there ain't no gas. The United States is doing the same thing. We acknowledged a long time ago that we're not going to produce ammunition in small quantities, that if we're going to produce ammunition, it's got to be big contracts because defense industry is not in the business of defending the national security. They're in the business of making money, and that's it. Unless you get a profitable plan, they're not compelled. They'll just say, we choose not to bid on this. We choose not to do this, uh, which they've done. And then the United States said, well, we're going to go everywhere we can. We're going to try and get the South Koreans to produce some ammunition, see if the Israelis can kick up some ammo, um, you know, and and things of that nature. But the the, the end result is we ain't got nothing. And so Biden acknowledging, you know, yeah, we're out of ammo. They're out of ammo. What he's done is is the equivalent of saying uh, instead of getting gasoline, you know, um, 
he's go, he's going to pour uh, vodka into the tank. He's going to say, "Well, we ain't got any gasoline, but Mario, buddy, I'm bringing in a whole bunch of vodka, and at lap 375, we're going to start putting vodka into your engine." And Mario might be going, "That ain't a good idea, guys, because I need gasoline, not vodka. The engine may run, but it might overheat. Uh, it's going to blow up, uh, gunk up. You know, it isn't designed for for vodka." The war in Ukraine is not designed for cluster munitions. Let me explain why. When the war started and um, the Russians were fighting on Ukrainian soil, both Russians and Ukrainians used cluster munitions. Not extensively, but they were, they were used. There is a purpose for you. Let's also clear something up. They're not illegal. So everybody out there going, this is illegal. They are not. So just really be quiet because you don't know what you're talking about. They're immoral. We can make that argument but they're right. not illegal. So using a cluster munition does not make you a war criminal. End of story. There is a military reason that these weapons exist because under certain circumstances, they can do a lot of damage on the enemy. I'm a former artillery guy. And uh, I know, I mean, I have fired a lot of DPICM, uh, not the uh, M864 round. Uh, I, I fired the, the, the predecessor. Um, you know, the M864 came out in 1987, but we weren't allowed to shoot it because it had a base bleed capabilities expensive. So it went straight into war reserve just in case we went to war. So we used the old stuff. But I mean, the snap, crackle, pop, anybody who's done it knows what I'm talking about. I had DPICM coming in on the on the target area, all over the ground. And um, if you were fortunate enough to shoot on a range that had armored vehicles, you got to see them taken out. Uh, if you put up the... Uh, you know, the, 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 the human targets, you got to see the damage done there. Very effective weapon designed for troops in the open or artillery or armored vehicles massed coming at you. That's what it's designed to do. And I, again, um, if I'm at war and I got enemy armor coming at me <laughs> and I'm doing a call for fire, it's going to be DPICM. That's what I'm going to be calling for because that's what I need to break it up. But when this war changed to phase two, uh, the Russians, um, you know, especially after they uh, did the referendum, um, they're fighting on Russian soil right now, almost exclusively. And as a result, the Russians aren't using cluster munitions on Russian soil. Why? Because of the high dead rate. Okay, They're not going to poison the landscape with munitions that are going to haunt them for years to come. So Russia is deliberately uh, not using them. And think about this. If there was a time for Russia to use DPI or to use cluster munitions, it's right now. It's right now when the Ukrainians are doing that which the munitions are designed to destroy. You know, cluster munitions are assault breakers. As you come in with your massed attacks, you hit them with DPICM, you break it all up. Right now, the uh, Ukrainians are, you know, they've stopped sending in their massed armor because everybody dies. So they're sending in infantry, massed infantry, DPICM, troops in the open. Snap, crackle, pop. They're all dead. Russia's not doing that. Not doing that at all. Why? Because it's Russian territory. Shoigu just came out and said, if you use cluster munitions against us, we will respond in kind. Russia has a 10 to 1 artillery advantage. I can guarantee you that Russia will have 100,000 times more cluster munitions than the uh, United States providing the Ukrainians. And all the United States is guarantee is that Russia is going to accrue even greater military advantage because these aren't game-changing weapons. Uh, it'll be it'll be a tough day for the guys that are caught under them. Okay, it's just the nature of war. But you know, it's not the ideal place. These troops are in trenches. Um, they have adequate overhead coverage. Um, remember, these are bomblets, so these are grenades. These aren't big 155 millimeter rounds hitting on a trench line, collapsing in, collapsing stuff. If you get adequate cover, these little grenades go off and go pop, 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 pop outside your trench. You don't care. And if you have branches and bushes over here the streamers get caught up and they don't explode or they land in the trench and go pop but you're deeper in you don't get hit um these aren't going to kill a lot of russians they're going to kill some like i said bad day for some russians but it's not going to be a game changer it's not like you're going to suddenly wipe the you know wipe the field with uh with russians but um for the ukrainians on the other hand as they do what you have to do before you go on the offensive you concentrate your forces you get that mass and then you move that mass towards the lines russians are going to open up with uh, cluster munitions and they're going to slaughter them that's the end of it so 
all Joe Biden has done is guarantee more Ukrainians are going to die. They're going to die at higher rates um, and they're going to have zero. You know, they're, they're not going to change the outcome on the battlefield. And that's a tragedy because now we come back to the George Soros effect. Eastern European manpower married with Western technology to bring pain to Russia. So right now we have a lot of hypocrites out there saying, hey, cluster munitions bring pain to Russia. But you're missing the point. You're sacrificing all of Ukraine to to achieve pain that won't do what you want it to do. You're just going to anger the Russians. You're not going to defeat the Russians. And coming up next on Arts Express, a report back from the actor's strike in progress against the Wall Street Hollywood East and West Empire. First, Ron Perlman, no stranger to such not unrelated horrors on screen, Hellboy, Season of the Witch, Monster Hunter, and Sons of Anarchy, unleashes his rage on Hollywood greed starving most actors, and one executive in particular. The one thing before I get off this, the mother who said we're going to keep this thing going until people start losing their houses and their apartments. Listen to me. There's a lot of ways to lose your house. Some of it is financial. Some of it is karma. And some of it is just figuring out who the fuck said that. And we know who said that. And where he lives. There's a lot of ways to lose your house. You wish that on people. You wish that families starve while you're making $27 million a year for creating nothing. Be careful. Be really careful. Because that's the kind of that stirs up. Peace out. This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express, and I'm very happy to have today as our guest, Jay Potter, who is the fourth vice president of the New York local board of SAG-AFTRA and longtime working film and television performer. Jay has participated in a union position in the fields of TV, film, and many other areas. That might have been true up to a week ago, uh, where film and television activity has pretty much come to a halt. I'm sure most of our Arts Express listeners are aware of the recent actor's strike that's going on. We played the rousing speech by Fran Drescher, president of sag After last week. And this week, we're here to find out an update and also to discuss the impact of this strike on working actors and find out exactly what the emotional and financial, political, personal, and cultural effects are of not only the strike, but this whole vicious Wall Street model of streaming that seems to have been forced upon artists and has nothing to do with art for that matter. Hi, Jay, Jay Potter. Jack, thank you uh, so much for being interested in this topic as it affects so many thousands of people, not only in the United States, but worldwide. I would say that is across numerous industries with the challenges that we all face. When, you know, you're really talking about an economic model where multi-billion dollar companies are rewarded for exploiting workers. And as a result, you see the communication workers of America on the picket line with us. You see the New York State Nursing Association on the picket line with us. You see SEIU, which is the Service Employees International Union, in other words, janitors. Uh, on the on the picket line with us, and you you see this is really a rallying cry uh, across all labor sectors, and they're on the line with us. Yeah, there's a level of exuberance that I've never seen before, and this strike is so different because the level of unity and power that I think everybody is feeling coming from every union member from 
you know, the top of the very top of the A-list all the way down to the rank and file members, that sense of unity is overwhelming. And that just adds to a sense of purposefulness that I think we all feel uh, on the picket line. And that combined with seeing so many of our friends that we haven't seen in a number of years um, adds to a lever, level of jollity and uh, positivity that is undeniable. On this show, we played uh, Fran Drescher's amazing speech last week. Could you do a summary of what the issue are for those who haven't caught it and why this is more than just the battle for money? You've okay. probably heard, Jack, um, about the studios wanting to pay one fee and scan an actor and use that actor's likeness in perpetuity for a very low dollar amount. And so here we are again now with um, with AI and the potential for seriously and significantly getting rid of actors and writers and making them expendable. Um, they are trying to get rid of us. That everybody on the negotiating committee is pulling their jaws up off the floor when you know they hear these kinds of offerings and promotions and statements from the industry when you know the middle class is just being decimated right and left by all sorts of maneuvers like what these multi-billion dollar inner you know international corporations are doing and we've built we've built their empire and now they're saying hey we don't need you anymore we'll give you a couple of bucks and scan your image and we'll use it in perpetuity i think with the ai also people don't realize that there are two key issues one is compensation and the other is consent in other words i could be in a background, if I were a member of the union, <laughs> you could be in the background for, I'm just going to throw something out there for a Joe Biden commercial. And tomorrow, that same image could be used for a Donald Trump <laughs> uh, commercial. And uh, you have no consent over it. What they're doing is they're separating the art from the artist and uh, just making everything into a commodity. Well, you know, I, there's so much to talk about. I want to get into actually your personal, you know, I want to little get a little personal, which is how does this affecting you guys from day to day, from moment to moment, trying to make a living? I would say for for me at this moment, we're only into the actors, uh, the SAG after a portion of the strike. Um, but of course, the writers strike uh, affects us as well deeply. Uh, I, personally, I I was able to do a feature film just prior to the strike, um, and so that was kind of nice to kind of get one in and, and under the wire, so to speak. Um, and you know, it's still relatively young. The and so personally, I I don't. There's always a lag time before you take any action and um, start to feel the financial repercussions of it. Um, and so for the immediate future, I feel really excited, enthralled to see friends who I haven't seen in years be on the strike line, feel the full strength of um, the moment and the resolve that everybody is bringing. And so, uh, so far, so good. And I will be showing up on the picket line every day that I can be there. You, you mentioned, Jay, that uh, earlier when we were talking that you had been part of the previous strike, uh, played an important role. Uh, now, that was, a, 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 I think you said, a six-month strike. So we all know in the first week, everybody is rah, rah, rah. But what happens by the time you get to month five and month six? Um, and do you think this is going to be a long strike? The resolve is amazing. And that in my 23 years of union service, I've never seen this level of resolve, this level of unity between um, all sections of the SAG-AFTRA body politic. And with that unity and resolve, I think we have the power to, to make change. This is a righteous fight, and it's, it's the fight 
that if we don't do it now at this very crucial inflection point, it'll be a fight we can never get back and never win down the road. And not only does this affect labor in our sector, but I think it affects labor across the across the planet. And um, and I think everybody is rooting for us. Jay, you talked about the uh, vertical integration of the industry. And what I'm also interested in is, obviously this is a labor issue, but it's also a culture issue. How has what gets to the screen changed because of this current model? You know, gosh, I don't, I don't know. That that's probably a question really more for the you know a studio executive, but it certainly seems like the things that get to traditional movie theater screens are the ginormous blockbusters, and then they eventually pretty quickly get to a streaming platform, um, and uh, and everything else that isn't a giant blockbuster, you know, you find pretty quickly on on your home screen. You know, they're they're the sharks and they can all sound like Batman. <laughs> you know, the, the the model is just that they are rewarded for exploiting labor. But we're actors, we're writers, we are doers, we are creatives, and we live in the world of feelings and somehow and intuition. And so we know this stuff. It's it's our currency. And when you have a, a class of persons that aren't connected to, I don't know, I'm 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 gonna I'm gonna go off the rails a little bit here and say oh, their okay. heart, their heart chakra, their 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 heart, their their mind, their their the a sense of feeling, a sense of community, a sense of networking of the things that are spiritually, economically fundamentally important to be in the world and to to be the kind of person that you would want your kids to be that you want your spouse to be that you want your neighbor to be these you you've you've made a decision that all of that stuff you don't care about it's that high level degree of selfishness is a recipe for ultimately an implosion um, one thing I would add to the concept of what people can do, I would say, be informed, you know, be informed about these issues. And you're a big part of that, Jack, by having us on and being able to share our points of view. Um, and I will also say post on social media, if you want to support hashtag SAG after strong and the WGA and, and just really be informed about this and what's at stake and and be able to sort of cross-reference this fight with all the other fights that are going on and see the similarities there and, and connect those dots because as many people have said our fight is your fight and they've come for us today and they will come for you tomorrow so um really understand what's at stake here globally Okay. I I did want to ask, what would an AIJ Potter be like? But uh, I won't put you on the spot. <laughs> I, I, I'd break the machine. <laughs> well, thanks so much, Jay Potter, fourth vice president of the New York local of SAG-AFTRA. This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller. And next up on Arts Express, director Mary Harron peers behind the curtain into the other side of art with her unconventional portrait of Salvador Dali in Dalyland, starring Ben Kingsley as Dali, and with her reputation for exploring the dark side of female relationships with prominent men in her movies, Heron sheds light on her body of work during this conversation, including I Shot Andy Warhol, The Notorious Betty Page, and American Psycho. First, some scenes from The Notorious Betty Page, then Mary Harron. She was the pinup queen of the universe. I need you to lift your knee up. I'm seeing a little bit too much. Can you bend over? Show us your kiss. Oh, you're so happy. I don't know how much I love. 
Betty, do you understand what kind of man buys these pictures? Does it just make you sick to see guys like me grovel like this? It's fine. Don't you just want to crush us? Humiliate us. Punish us. This is Mary. Hello, and welcome to our show. Thank you so much. What is it about Dolly that led you to choose him for your current film? Well, obviously, he's, I love him as an artist, and I love um, the way he, he maintained his creativity to the end of his life, you know, always, almost like, like a child, always discovering the world new, you know, always, you know, like a fount of ideas and, and, uh, and inspiration, but I was very interested in the idea of Dali in the 70s because, you know, we think of him as, as his, you know, being in Paris in the 30s with Bunuel and all, you know, the surrealists. And, and there he was in the 70s, uh, you know, running around, going to Studio 54 and, and hanging out with Alice Cooper. And it was like so such a weird juxtaposition. Um, and then my husband, John, who wrote the screenplay, uh, sort of, had a vision for it that that Dali aging and this man who's uh, sort of terrified of death um, that that made him very human and vulnerable and that as as weird a figure as Dali is as, as sort of hard to, in a way to understand as this kind of impenetrable genius his his vulnerability around aging and death made him very human and, and made a kind of way into the character. How would you say this unique creation together of a husband and wife, portraying a husband and wife in the film, compares and contrasts with unrelated partners working together on a film? And with the two of you involved in such a close long-term relationship, when you disagreed about anything pertaining to shaping this film, who won? Oh, you know, really, it, it varies. <laughs> um, we We actually get on really well when we're writing the script, and then when we're filming, it's always hard to have the writer on set because yeah, I'd, I'd be filming and say, you didn't get that moment. And I'd be like, well, I, I've got to move on now. I can't go back and get that moment. You know, so then we'd, you know, we don't fight very much, but we've fought more on set as, as, you, as writers and directors do. But on the whole, it's very, it's very collaborative. And I'd say sometimes, you know, like any mar good marriage, you know, sometimes he wins, sometimes I do. You know, or sometimes you think, okay, you're right. You know, okay, I see it now. You know, uh, he came up with the idea of the flashbacks, which I really liked, um, of um, Dali wandering into his own flashbacks. And he gave me this idea, and then he sort of said, oh, well, maybe it won't work. And then at that point, I was like, no, no, we've got to do it. You know, so it kind of works that push and pill. You know, he'll come up with something, and sometimes I'll push him forward to do it. I mean, I guess I think we what we brought because our relationship is very different. It, it's not very combative at all. Um, but whereas the, the the you know Gala and Dolly fight constantly. But I think we had a sense of how art is or your creative life is woven into your just your domestic life. Um, you know that's why we wanted a very simple scene of of Dolly and Gala just sitting at breakfast over boiled eggs because. You know, that's part of what your life is when you're making a, you know, yeah. a movie or making art. <laughs> just sometimes you're just sitting around eating boiled eggs. Um, so we wanted to catch the, the, um, the behind the scenes was very important. You know, who people are in private versus yeah. the public, which is something that always interested me, the, the, the contrast between public and private. Those scenes, one of my favorite scenes is when you see both Gala and Dali getting ready to go out the night of the big party. And they're at their separate kind of, she's at her makeup table and he's getting dressed in front of a mirror and you get a sense of, of people, you know, adopting their public, public persona that they're going to present to the world. Now, one of the things that is so special about your portraying of Gala, Dali's wife in particular, are her feelings as a woman who is both adored and abused and from your own female perspective, and especially that unforgettable line she utters, quote, all those women who kiss your feet at your parties, but I'm the one who cuts your toenails, brings you coffee. What are your thoughts about including that? 
Oh, I love that line. And Barbara came up with that, Barbara Sokova. Mm. You know, she we were just talking about the character, and she just sort of, while we were in conversation, she just, she just sort of improvised that line in Gala's voice. And I was like, that's great. We'll use that. Because it's so everyday and specific. And it's just like, yes, yeah, she's, She's looking after him like a like a baby, you know. She she's doing everything for him to create, so he can create this grand, you know, charismatic image in in public. And it's a it's a um, enormous amount of labor that she did. I mean, she gets a bad rap as being this kind of mean harridan, you know, in in the art history books. And there's there's certain sexism in that, I think. Yeah. But she. You know, she packed the suitcases. She she did the finances. She did all the travel. She did everything for him. And so this is a kind. Of, one of the things that John and I wanted to do in this story was to give Gala her due. And I wanted to ask you: a number of your films explore the dark side of female relationships with prominent men, including Dallyland, I Shot Andy Warhol, and American Psycho. What was it that drew you to that theme? I mean, I think I think it's obviously something that women, uh, you know, and certainly of my generation, but I think younger generations, you know, when men are are the dominant power, men who are successful, men who are great artistic figures, they have a lot of sort of allure, and they, you know, I think women are attracted to that, and young men too, as we see in James, you know, pe- young people are attracted to that. But then there's also the um, the backlash that comes, you know, when you when you're your power when you are subordinate, when you're power really, you know, you can be tossed out at any time, you know. I'm, I've definitely been interested in the idea of the famous artist and the power that they're allowed to wield and and surrounded by and they and they also, which is true of Warhol, true of Salvador Dali, they create these adoring courts around them. And then they have favorites that they can, you know, elevate or or discard, you know. It's, you know, it's also like one of the things that happens with fame. Celebrity allows you to do that too, the working of our world. And what have been the challenges for you as a woman of making films your way and with your female perspective? I mean, I've been lucky. I think I was very lucky in the era that I arrived in making my first film, although it took me years to get Aisha Andy Warhol off the ground. I mean, I had the idea in like 87, I think, and the film got made and came out in 96. Um, but I, I sort of moved back to New York and stumbled on this new independent film scene. And I met um, Christine Vachon and Tom Kalin, who were very important parts of that movement. And they were open and they were sort of at the forefront of queer cinema uh, which I shot Andy Warhol sort of fit into um, a little bit. You know, it's not quite that, but it it definitely was in the territory. And uh, and that just was, was celebrating telling stories, alternative histories, really, you know, telling stories in a different way. And I was very fortunate to find not just those producers, but also a team of people who were making those films. So I was, you know, timing is everything. I was lucky. And what can you say about a new and different venture for you with We the Economy? Oh, oh yes, oh yeah, that was fun. Oh yeah, I really enjoyed that because it allowed me to do something political. Um, and I am very interested in politics, and I was able to, uh, you know, in a way, it was more like the films I used to do when I started out directing at the BBC. I did um, a lot of short films for a show called The Late Show, and they a lot of them were sort of satirical. And you'd get a lot of information in quickly. And I, it sort of was a return to that roots and about doing something funny, but trying to get information. And I felt very strongly about the healthcare system because I'm, uh, I grew up in Canada and in Britain and with great national health systems. I've always found the American system insane. And so that was just a great, fun chance for me. And what would you hope audiences understand about Dali and his volatile relations with Gala and with women? Um, I hope that they see that the relationship be- between them, how, how complex that was, a complex, that it, in a relationship like that, it's very hard to say who is dominant, who is in control, who is the victim. Um, 
you know, and, and sort of rehabilitate her reputation a bit from, so that she's not just this harrod and she, she was very flawed um, and in some ways she damaged Salvador Dali, but her need for insatiable need for money, but she also did so much to promote him that this, just to look at this very complex and driven woman, you know. Okay, Mary Harron, thank you for joining us on the show. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you. Okay, bye. Bye. And Dali Land is out now in release online. And now on Arts Express. The Doomsday Machine. Blast off! Well, boys, I reckon this is it. Nuclear combat toe-to-toe with the Ruskies. I was under the impression that I was the only one in authority to order the use of nuclear weapons. Huh. Missile still deflecting. Range one mile. And no, those were not scenes from Oppenheimer. Rather, Stanley Kubrick's Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. Though some have accused the former, Oppenheimer, of being a bad knockoff of the latter. But no review of Oppenheimer on Arts Express, released as it has been across that virtual picket line of the actors on strike. Rather, Brett Gregory, from our Arts Express UK desk, delving into the late directing legend's enormous body of instant screen classics. Hi, my name's Brett Gregory, and I'm an independent screenwriter, director and producer here in Manchester in the UK. A former lecturer in film and cultural studies, I also enjoy writing about the academic study of cinema with the aim of promoting the subject, its ideas and development to a wider audience. What follows is my review of Jeremy Carr's Kubrick and Control, Authority, Order and Independence in the Films and Working Life of Stanley Kubrick, published by Liverpool University Press in 2023. Like many eager teenagers who found themselves sleepless and cinephilic during the gilded age of VHS in the 1980s, you genuinely felt the presence of the director of The Shining at your shoulder as you sat alone in the living room and watched his vision of the unfamiliar, the unnerving, and the uncanny ominously unfold. The absolute exactness of everything on screen, in concert with Wendy Carlos's hypnotic electronic orchestration, drenched with such doom and dread, overwhelmed and compelled you to return to its psychopathy again and again, until, without knowing it, you had soon learned the dialogue verbatim, as if it was a lyric, from some obscure prog rock album entitled Grand Guignol. Jeremy Carr's comprehensive hagiography of Stanley Kubrick's career of creative compulsions and authorial control conjures up many, many youthful memories such as this. And, as a consequence, it is a must-read for anyone who pines for the serious aesthetics of mainstream cinema to return. Kubrick first began to learn to direct his subjects, to control light and shade, to understand lenses, composition, exposure and balance within the frame as a precocious 17-year-old staff photographer working for Look magazine in New York between 1946 and 1950. According to Dr James Fenwick, he seems to have wanted to push the limits of the creative freedom he was offered at the magazine attempting to broaden his autonomy and invest his own personality into his work. Onwards, and this competitive attitude and approach to producing cinema with distinct authority was helped and honed throughout the 1950s by way of the chess matches he played against the regulars in Washington Square in the shade and under street lamps, a meticulous metier which he would introduce to the cast and crew on the movie sets he was later to govern. As the director himself explains in John Baxter's Stanley Kubrick, a biography from 1998, if chess had any relationship to filmmaking, it would be in the way it helps you develop patience and discipline, 
in choosing between alternatives at a time when an impulsive decision seems very attractive. Day of the Fight became Kubrick's first motion picture at the age of 23, a 16-minute black-and-white documentary which follows Irish-American middleweight boxer Walter Cartier as he prepares to fight Bobby James on April 17th, 1950. Here, in between the staging and the spit, the uppercuts and the close-ups, Card identifies the shadow of a light motif which would eventually loom over the director's entire oeuvre, the driven man. In The Killing in 1956, for instance, his first proper studio picture for United Artists, veteran ex-con Johnny Clay, played by Sterling Hayden, strides across the screen as he confidently describes to his fiancée the herd of hoodlums he is about to corral with the sole purpose of pulling off a daring $2 million robbery at the racetrack. In turn, in 1957, Colonel Dax, played by Kirk Douglas, can be seen in Paths of Glory to be a character cut from the same thick cloth, single-minded in his lofty and loquacious attempts to hold the French military command to account as he defends three soldiers who have been arbitrarily accused of cowardice during World War I. Crucially, this incipient interpretation of the masculine desire to confront, combat and conquer against the odds, against authority, against nature, against destiny, famously evolved into Kirk Douglas's portrayal of the titular militant messiah in Universal Pictures' Spartacus in 1960. This sword and sandal saga about a humble gladiator rising up to lead the largest ever slave revolt against the imperious Roman Republic was the most expensive and prestigious film production Kubrick had helmed. Furthermore, its subsequent commercial and cultural success helped to solidify his own personal and professional ambitions to be recognised as a leading figure within the industry, a true American auteur. As Carr explains, he was at the mercy of an egotistical group of actors, heavyweights Laurence Olivier and Charles Lawton bickering with each other and questioning the authority of this young filmmaker, an equally obsessive producer-lead performer in Kirk Douglas and the constraints dictated by a film of this size and scope. This said, as Peter Kramer continues, Spartacus established him as an important player in Hollywood enabling to negotiate with financiers and distributors from a position of strength so that from then on he could produce medium to big budget films financed and distributed by the major studios, yet made without much interference from them. The male drive to succeed, however, is not enough in itself. Such a raw and potentially ruinous emotion needs discipline, direction and order if it is to achieve its aims effectively reach its destination intact and claim its prize. As a consequence, iconographic tropes such as maps, plans and or schematics, either handmade or technological, often feature prominently in Kubrick's mise-en-scene as a visual connotation of the character's need for organisation, method and control. In his first production, shot in colour, for example, the 30-minute promotional documentary The Seafarers from 1953 he explores how the Seafarers International Union in Maryland recruits and regulates its mariners, fishermen and boatmen before they work the oceans. To illustrate the scope and influence of this huge endeavour, Kubrick pans across a large world map as the narrator asserts Antwerp, Cape Town, London, Marseille, Singapore, you name it, picking his destination is the right of every seafarer. More memorably, of course, is the mesmeric overhead pushing on the scale model of the hedge maze in The Shining in 1980. Restless in the reception hall of the Overlook Hotel, Jack Torrance, played by Jack Nicholson, leans over and into it like a disturbed divisional general, surveying his battle plans for the next day, as his wife and son appear superimposed as mere insects, happily oblivious that they are wandering through a metaphor for their patriarch's decaying mind. Indeed, Carr reiterates this recurring Kubrickian conceit in his epilogue when he cites the screenplay for Napoleon, the unrealised biographical epic 
which many critics agree would have proved to have been the director's raison d'etre, the totality of his cinematic aesthetic. Scene 31, interior, Napoleon's Paris headquarters, day. Pencil between his teeth, dividers in one hand, Napoleon creeps around on hands and knees on top of a very large map of Italy, laid out from wall to wall. Other large maps cover the table, the couch, and any other available space. In line with his increased production budgets, abilities, and aspirations, Kubrick advanced his ruminations on order, control, and power considerably in Doctor Strangelove in 1964, 2001 A Space Odyssey in 1968, and A Clockwork Orange in 1971. On the one hand, these three films can be seen to mirror the theoretical work carried out by one of his 1960s contemporaries, Marshall McLuhan, in terms of technology serving as an extension of man, his physicality, his consciousness, his ethics and his will. And on the other, it could be argued that they also echo Karl Marx's position in the 19th century with regards to technological determinism and the hegemonic role this plays in the socio-economic relations and cultural practices of wider society. For example, the cockpit of the B-52 in Dr. Strangelove is heaving with a smorgasbord of lights, switches, maps, gauges, radars and guides as it transports a hydrogen bomb to its intended Soviet target. The message from the military to the body politic is very loud and clear. Everything is under control. We have the technology. God bless America. With the incomparable 2001 A Space Odyssey, the audience and cinema itself are invited to take a giant leap forwards as Kubrick propels us from the prehistoric broken bones of homicidal hominids and into the nervous system of the spacecraft Discovery. Its intricate network of hibernation pods and plasma pipes, scanners and closed circuit cameras, all interconnected and centralised within the mainframe brain of HAL, the supercomputer whose sole duty is to transport the crew to Jupiter to investigate an alien radio signal. We can only assume that, hypothetically, if this fully funded interplanetary mission is successful, then it would surely herald the expansion of American political, economic and cultural imperialism out of this world and throughout the cosmos. Returning to Earth with a clockwork orange, Kubrick explicitly intertwines technology and hegemony by way of the Ludovico technique, a state-sponsored behavioural aversion procedure which is tested on one desperate experimental subject, the untamed, ultraviolent rapist droog Alex Delarge, played by Malcolm McDowell. Here, scientific research, knowledge and needles are employed by the British Ministry of the Interior to physically inculcate self-control and conclusively cure him of his own destructive free will. The treatment leaves working-class Alex meek and defenceless, and against our better judgment, we are encouraged to feel sympathy for him. Professor Philip Kaberski argues, however, that the film's narrative should not be regarded as a defence of free will at all but instead as a reminder to the audience that we are also conditioned in some way or another, and the day-to-day -day freedoms we think we enjoy are just an illusion. With this in mind, we can thus posit that Kubrick's driven men, whether they know it or not, are also suffering from a similar existential crisis. That is, their desire to confront, combat and conquer is just that, a desire, and not a logical decision, which they're able to make. As a result, their attempts to control and direct their impulses with plans, maps or technology are ultimately unsustainable due to the impermanence and vicissitudes of the wider world, the people within it and the forces in between. Thus, their turbulent and tragic character arcs can only lead their sense of purpose and their sense of self to overexposure, disorder and defeat. In Lolita in 1962, for instance, the upstanding university lecturer, Humbert Humbert, played by James Mason, is ultimately undone by his illicit infatuation with the 14-year-old Dolores Hayes, 
deliriously dissolving into a mere shell of himself, totally out of control and forcibly subdued by hospital staff. Redmond Barry, played by Ryan O'Neill, the self-serving 18th century Irish scoundrel and gambler in Barry Lyndon in 1975, swears that he will never fall from the rank of a gentleman. But, inevitably, he comes tumbling down the social ladder following a messy duel against his stepson, where he loses his leg and is banished from England forever. Then there is Gunnery Sergeant Hartman, played by R. Lee Ermey, who, in Full Metal Jacket in 1986, humiliates and belittles his squad of new recruits, stripping them one by one of their egos and their dignity in order to transform them into marines, into killing machines who are ready to eat their own guts and ask for seconds. It is ironic that this brutal training regime proves to be more successful than anyone could have imagined, when, during one sleepy evening, the maligned and malfunctioning private pile, played by Vincent D'Onofrio, executes Hartman, his nemesis, with a bullet to the chest. As can be seen, nearly all of the male protagonists mentioned are leaders and or patriarchs who, while memorably constructed and beautifully performed, are also narcissistic, naive, deluded and alone. Consequently, one critical lesson we can learn from Stanley Kubrick's exceptional oeuvre, as well as from Jeremy Carr's fine book, is that as audience members and as mindful citizens, we should always be extremely careful about the kind of men we choose to bestow authority, control and power upon in political, corporate and cultural life. Thank you, Brett Gregory. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.